Welcome to the latest edition of Infection Control Matters. Uh, today I've got um, Professor Josh Davis and Dr. Sarah Browning from Hunter New England Health District in New South Wales and also part of the HMRI, the Hunter Medical Research Institute. Welcome both. Thanks, Brett. Hi, Brett. Thanks for having us. Uh, my pleasure. And uh, a conflict here, I work with, uh, with both Josh and Sarah on a few different things as well. Now, today we're going to be talking about a paper that's just been published in Infection, Disease and Health. It's called Have Gloves and Gowns Had Their Day? And it's an Australian and New Zealand survey about contact precautions for MRSA and VRE. So, Sarah, you led this piece of work. Do you want to just give us a little bit of a background as to why, why you're interested in this topic of contact precautions? Sure. Well, I think it's it's become quite topical in um, within sort of IPC fields. Um, so there's a lot of conversations um, happening at the moment as to how we should best be managing our patients who are either colonised or infected with MRSA and VRE. And I think adding to that has been this mounting concerns, I suppose, about climate change and, you know, how um, hospitals are contributing to increased carbon emissions. And and so particularly um, through the COVID pandemic, there's been growing interest, I suppose, in the amount of PPE that's being used in healthcare. And I think that's mm. contributed somewhat to, um, I guess, people within IPC thinking about the role of gowns and gloves for VRE and MRSA, although I know that, you know, this has been talked about for many years predating COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was, it really just stemmed from discussions that we were having within our own department and also with people in other hospitals around Australia as well, recognising this growing interest in answering the question, I suppose, as to whether gowns and gloves do actually reduce transmission of MRSA and VRE in hospitalised patients. Uh, so this survey was about laying the groundwork, I suppose, to explore whether there is the interest that we think there is in developing or designing an RCT that could be um, done in Australian hospitals uh, mm. to answer the question about efficacy as to whether gowns and gloves do reduce transmission. That's an interesting point. And, and Josh, I'll bring you in here. You know, there's been some literature in the past which has suggested perhaps that gloves and gowns for contact precautions for MRSA and VRE are not going to cause harm if they're withdrawn. What's been your sort of take on why why we've got to this point? Why do you reckon these guidelines have changed when there's been some some mounting evidence to this point? Yeah, I mean, it's so established in practice and in people's minds that contact precautions means gowns and gloves in addition to single rooms and hand hygiene and so on, um, that I think it would be very difficult to convince people to have large-scale practice change without higher-level evidence than what we already have. So, you know, on a superficial level, what we already have might seem convincing, which is multiple observational studies all suggesting that um, it didn't really make a difference or it didn't cause a harm when people stopped doing gowns, using gowns and gloves. However... Firstly, um, not all studies showed the same thing. Occasionally, mm. you know, smaller studies showed it, it got worse. And secondly, um, you know, the literature is littered with observational studies of whatever intervention suggesting one thing and then a randomised trial 
showing the truth, which is the opposite to what the observational studies showed, because they're obviously subject to bias, subject to time effect and to confounding, etc. So I think randomized trials are really important. And something like this, it doesn't lend itself well to RCTs. It's not easy to do because you'd have it'd have to be, we'll talk about maybe in, in a minute, but it'd have to be a cluster level, etc. But to me, just because something's hard to do doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. That's fantastic. And, and you're absolutely right about observational studies throwing up one thing. I've just actually finished a, a systematic review on a particular topic, and, and by and large, they were all observational studies, and they indicated a certain risk, um, but that actually contradicts what some of the RCTs would say on, on that topic. So it's um, it's fascinating. That's, of course, some of the bias we have with observational studies. So, Sarah, just going back to this study, and then we'll, we'll move on to some of those points that Josh alluded to. You decided to, to do a survey of um, those involved in infection control in Australia and New Zealand. Can you tell us a little about, about that? Yeah, we did. So we designed the survey. Um, I think there was 23 questions in our survey, which were designed to explore how people in Australian and New Zealand hospitals are currently approaching VRE and MRSA colonised and infected patients um, because... I guess we were coming at this question with quite a HNE, Hunter New England centric approach. And we needed to know what was already being done in other hospitals um, to know whether the idea of an RCT was actually feasible. Um, so we asked people questions around whether they were using single rooms, um, whether they were using gowns and gloves routinely for MRSA and VRE. We also questioned participants around whether there was interest in removal of gowns and gloves for both VRE and MRSA in their hospitals uh, and whether they would be interested uh, in participating in an RCT um, if one were to be designed. So this was sent to members of the Australasian College for Infection Prevention Control and uh, the Australasian Society for Infectious Diseases and online and you had a good response rate, I think, in all things considered. Yeah, that's right. So we just asked people who work specifically in infection prevention and control. Um, so uh, particularly those who the survey was sent to through the Australasian Society of Infectious Diseases, some of those people wouldn't have been eligible to actually participate in the study. So it's hard to sort of calculate a participation rate, but we had 220 individual responses for the survey, mm. um, which were from 122 individual hospitals. That's pretty good. That's that's a good response rate. Um, yeah, yeah. In, t- in terms of the number of hospitals. Yeah, yeah, I was quite happy with that. It's hard to know for sure, but I think we included all of the principal referral hospitals across Australia, and we also had six hospitals from New Zealand as well. So I was very mm. happy with the participation. And, and principal referral hospitals for those uh, internationalists, that's that's sort of the largest um, hospitals, if you like, in Australia. So that was um, good coverage of those. Um, so what were some of the findings, uh, Sarah? So, essentially, um, it, it's hard to report them all um, in the, in the, the headline ones, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, look, essentially for MRSA, almost 86% of hospitals that were surveyed are currently using contact precautions, which we defined as use of a single room gowns or aprons and Mm -hmm. gloves. And that was a little bit lower than VRE. So 90, almost 92% of hospitals indicated that they're currently using contact precautions, including single rooms, gowns and gloves. We then surveyed people um, sort of individually looking at gown use, glove use, which was around the same for those as well. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there wasn't a lot of difference, was there? Um, no, not a great deal. But no. I think, you know, what we could tell from those results is that the approach to MRSA and VRE, I mean, they were a little bit different. So I think more hospitals are tending to be, uh, I guess, more relaxed with their approach to MRSA compared to VRE. And we can mm. talk about the specifics of that in a minute, mm. if you like. And what about their interest in removing uh, glove and, and or gown use uh, for contact precautions as part of contact precautions? Yeah, so it was quite high, but again, more interest in um, MRSA rather than VRE. So 70, just over 73% of people who were responding on behalf of hospitals, so 73% mm. of those 122 hospitals were interested in removing gown use for MRSA versus only 68% um, removing gown use for VRE. Mm. And that was fairly similar to um, interest in removing glove use. So that's at it. Uh, 71% for MRSA and 70% for VRE. And just slightly less interest in potentially participating in an RCT if that opportunity was to arise. I think it was about 60-odd percent. Yes, 61.7%. Yeah. So, Josh, I guess, you know, what this is broadly telling us is, you know, people are using gowns and gloves the majority of time for contact precautions uh, or a combination of some of those. But there seems to be quite a bit of widespread interest to removing these gloves and gowns. And it's interesting that it hasn't happened yet. You know, that the, the, we've seen, as you alluded to, we've seen these systematic reviews and other bits of observational studies suggesting no harm, but people haven't haven't jumped on that bandwagon yet. But equally, 60-odd percent only wanted, wanted to participate in an RCT. So what, what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to note that that 61% is not the number of people that have, have equipoise for the question. Mm-hmm. 61% is the number of, of sites which would have capacity and time and interest to actually do all the extra work that it takes to be part of an RCT. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, the 40% that s- said, no, we, we don't want to be in an RCT, that doesn't necessarily mean they wouldn't be comfortable with the idea of removing gowns and gloves. Mm-hmm. It you know it could mean that, but it could also mean that they just they don't have any research capacity at their sites to collect data and so on. But and you're right. I think one really key thing here is, you know, this debate. Uh, I've had this discussion with a lot of people that do we really need to do an RCT? There's a lot of evidence out there. But my answer is, well, people practice hasn't changed, right? Mm-hmm. And and if we think if we want practice to change, we need to first find out is it even true that gowns and gloves are of no added benefit? And we need to convince people of that fact. Um, And the only way, I think, to truly convince them is to have a large-scale, well-designed trial. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what got me, one thing that got me interested in this whole question is, um, you know, when we had a lot of COVID patients in the ward, every time I'd go in and out of the ward, seeing that bin overflowing with plastic gowns and gloves just you know made me sick and you know it was so visible right and you saw the bin being filled up and empty before your eyes um and so just imagining how much landfill we're creating by that for something that we may not even need to be doing really needs addressing yeah that's right so we've got the big environmental impact of course the cost of procuring all these pieces of equipment and then then there's the 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 element of clinicians doing what they want to do and and would they be they free of gloves and gowns but that make other practices easier to do as well particularly things like hand hygiene when someone's in contact precautions 
So, and I would, I would also should have disclosed on part of the discussions with this and an author on this paper too, but one of the things I think we've been discussing is, well, what type of design could answer this question? And you started to talk about that, Josh, at the start about a cluster RCT. What, what do you see as some of the solutions or options here for, for future design? Yeah, so, I mean, the sort of simplest RCT design is an individual patient RCT, but that really would not work here, right, where you can't randomise every patient who comes in to either have gowns and gloves used in their room or not. Mm. Um, that isn't practical. Um, so the next level up would be a cluster RCT where you ra- randomise entire hospitals or sometimes in just wards of hospitals um, to routinely do that practice or not do the practice. Um, and then I guess the, the other... So that's one trial design, um, and the, sort of the simplest and easy to under, easiest to understand. The third one is um, a step wedge trial where every hospital participating gets the intervention. In this case, the intervention is removal of gowns and gloves, but it's introduced at a different time in each hospital, as and that time is determined by randomization. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then finally, there's a crossover design you can use in cluster. Uh, designed so that hospitals are randomised to either remove gowns and gloves now or do it in period number two, a year later, mm-hmm. and then the mm-hmm. hospitals cross over. So there's different designs to consider. They all have pros and cons, and the power is different to each of them as well. Mm. And speaking of power, that's the, the key thing here. I mean, what are, what are people going to be interested in as the main outcome if we were to remove gloves and gowns for patients with VR in our MRSA, I mean, what, what, what are people going to be most interested in saying, okay, we need to know about harm, but what harm are we interested in here? And what, what's yeah. acceptable? I mean, I think it needs to be a patient-centred endpoint. So, and I think the one we've been considering is the number of new acquisitions of MRSA or VRE, and that would be combined clinical specimens. So, you know, if there's a clinically driven specimen taken, a swab of a wound or a blood culture, as well as colonisation specimens. Um, the reason to combine them, even though they're not the same thing, is otherwise you'd have insufficient power, I think, if you just made it clinical specimens. So the we'd really want to convincingly show that the rate of new acquisition of those organisms was not any higher when we remove gowns and gloves. Um, and that that's where we get into the difficult area because um, I think in, in the survey, we asked people what they thought would be a sort of clinically acceptable difference. And most people felt that anything above 5% would be too much. So mm-hmm. if there was a more than 5% increase in MRSA acquisition, for example, then, you know, th- then the intervention is not safe. The problem for powering it for that 5% degree of change needs a large number of clusters. Yeah. And so what are your thoughts about sort of that, that outcome of acquisition? How important is that, you know, in your role of heading up a fetch control at Hunter New England? And how would you compare that to something like an infection with one of those particular organisms? Well, I guess the problem is, is that one tends to lead to the other. Um, and so... I think from an IPC perspective, acquisitions are very important. It's just a difficult thing to measure unless you're performing routine surveillance on patients and we just aren't doing that. So while I think acquisitions are still clinically important, you know, it is important that we try to prevent transmission of these MROs in our healthcare settings, 
pragmatically speaking, it's a difficult thing to reliably measure. And so instead we end up relying on, you know, incidental findings of VRE in urines or wounds that happen to return a, a positive result for MRSA. Um, so I think they're important, but I think when they're included in the context of a trial, we just need to be aware uh I guess, conscious of the fact that it may not be reliable or telling us the whole picture. And of course, acquisition, one of the big challenges of acquisition data is is the screening practices that might happen or not happen and the variability associated with that. Mm. Just another complexity there. What do you see as the next steps for this um, piece of work? Uh, I must admit, I feel a little bit conflicted, I think, after... And almost a little bit inspired too, to be honest, because what we found through the surveys that, you know, somewhere between 10 and 15% of these hospitals have already abandoned contact precautions, you know, in that traditional sort of format that we think of. And so I was really interested to read through all the comments and learn about what other uh, hospitals have implemented. Um, and, you know, there were there were so many variations on these themes, including not instigating any contact precautions for non-multi-resistant MRSAs. Some people had different approaches for Van A's and Van B's. Um, and I really enjoyed learning about the approach in the state of Victoria where they use a risk um, assessment-based method to essentially um, determine the individual patient's risk of transmission. And I think, you know, I think that's a really nice way of looking at this rather than applying blanket rules to every patient. And in a perfect world, we probably could abide by these blanket rules more easily. But in the real world, we have a shortage of single rooms and that's been exacerbated by the COVID pandemic. So when we have these COVID waves, um, you know, we, we rapidly run out of single rooms and we're left needing to cohort patients with MROs. And, you know, I think that with a risk-based approach that could potentially be done in a safer way and really with my infection control hat on what we're trying to do is reduce transmission events and keep patients safe so i think you know from a research perspective this remains a really interesting question and it does deserve to be answered but from a practical you know a practical clinician based role i sort of think well maybe we should be approaching contact precautions from a resource perspective and thinking about how can our healthcare resources best be used to protect the other patients in the hospital. And for me, that's really more thinking about how we use our single rooms and how we risk assess patients, um, you know, and obviously we always come back to standard precautions and how important they are. So um, I guess that doesn't so much answer your question, but I think now that we have the results of this survey, we, we somewhat need to go back to the drawing board and, and think about where our resources are best placed to serve our hospitals and our patients. Interesting thoughts there, Sarah. Thanks. And, and Josh, what about you? Any final thoughts from yourself about where to from here? And Yeah, I think I'm like kind of on the other end of the spectrum from Sarah in that, you know, my kind of cognitive bias is that I like RCTs, you know, and I think <laughs> <laughs> there should be more of them in the world and they're fun to do and important. But the other thing is I'm going to just take one thing Sarah said and spin it on its head. Um, in a perfect world, people would be able to individually and subtly risk assess every patient and they would understand and follow these rules. But, you know, my 20-odd years working in hospitals has told me a lot of people are bad at that, especially doctors and especially nurses who are not infection control practitioners or don't have access to one. So my feeling is that we need a simple kind of 
concrete blanket rule, um, even though it's not the, the you know doesn't make the most logical sense. That's the thing that people will follow, and in order to create that, you know, we need the RCT, like I said. But you know, we're going to be continue to have this debate <laughs> offline. We will, we will, and look, it can, it can also be a combination of those two things: an RCT that provides the headline evidence you need, but the ability to tailor based on individual context, epidemiology, and circumstance. Um, and you know, the risks and profiles of all these hospitals with the different approaches vary considerably across Australia, and I'm sure across the world. So, um, all those all those things to consider. Well, um, look, I look forward to continuing this conversation with you both and and others in a in a larger working group that we're involved with to try and try and um, resolve this one way or other down the track. But um, thank you so much, Sarah, for your time and, and work on this, and and Josh as well. We really appreciate it here on the, on the podcast. Thanks, Brett. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Brett. My pleasure. And that's a wrap for this issue of uh, Infection Control Matters. Thanks, everybody.